0: So when I, when I saw that there were eight different words approximately that refer to sin in the Old Testament and, and 12 in the New Testament, I thought to myself, why so many? Why are there so many different words needed to describe sin? And uh, I wonder if maybe it's because mankind is just very, very creative at sinning. We have lots of different ways in which we sin, don't we? And there's lots of nuances to our sin. And so we could generally assume that to just use one word would not be adequate. It would not necessarily cover all the subtle nuances to the ways in which mankind finds to sin and to transgress God's standard. It kind of reminds me of... uh, when we had our homeless ministry downtown, we were much more active with that. We would regularly see gentlemen from the shelter who would come over and be part of our ministry and and fellowship with us. And we would also see the people who would be working very, very hard to just get $5, 10 $20, whatever they could get. And even just Friday, I'm sitting at the office, and I hear a gentleman come in, and I can tell that he's sort of... Um, engaging with some of the patrons who are there for the coffee shop. So I figure I should go down there and see what's going on. And it's a gentleman that I have known for many, many years, chronic homelessness. He's um, on some of the Columbus police and the Discovery District's you know, alert list. But he's never been violent with us. He's never, ever shown any traits that would cause us to concern. His name is Vincent Martin. And I see that he's really kind of bogarting uh, this couple's time, and I can tell that they're being polite, but obviously don't want to continue to be bothered by him. And so I grab him and I say, hey, Come on, let's go outside, let's chat for a minute. So we walk outside. And he just proceeds to chat with me for the next 15 minutes about what he has going on in life and all these strategies and all this hard work that he's going to do just to try and get some money. And I've always thought, it reminded me on Friday when I was sitting there listening to him, and it reminded me of many, many years ago when we would engage these gentlemen on a regular basis. They work so hard at scheming and planning and and structuring their sin and their strategies And I thought to myself, if these guys would just sometimes take all of this creativity that they have, all of this energy, all of this amazing thought, and channel it for good, how successful they would be in life. They work so hard at trying to scheme and manipulate and come at people from an angle just to get like $5. And it's like, take that creativity, take that intellect that you have, and use that and channel that for good. And you would be so, so successful. So I was thinking about that as it pertains to, you know, all of these vocabulary words that are used to describe all of the nuances to sin. In a general sense, sin really just means missing the mark or the target. Generally just missing the mark or the target. Exodus 20.20 20, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of Him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. And so we see here that God did not tempt Israel, because God cannot be a part of sin, but He certainly tested Israel, and the point of Him testing Israel was so that they might not sin. And it wasn't in a specific Realm, but sin in general. Another aspect of sin uh, that we get is something that is morally wrong or broken. Something that is morally wrong or broken. Uh, Genesis 3 5, God said, Do not eat, or you will know good and evil. So just an understanding of something that is morally wrong. Another aspect of sin that the Bible describes in its many vocabulary is this idea of actively rebelling against God actively rebelling Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2 he says listen o heavens and hear o earth for the lord speaks sons i have reared up and brought up they have revolted against me they have revolted again they have actively rebelled against God Another aspect of sin that is described is this idea of going astray like sheep or a drunk person might do. Going astray. I'm going to turn to Isaiah for a moment and read Isaiah chapter 28. I need those... uh... Little tabs. You know those Bibles that have the little tabs? I can just flip through it in the binder. Uh, chapter 28, verse 7. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 7. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering Judgment. So we see here that an aspect of sin is a lot like sheep going astray or that a j- drunk person might do and just wander. Ezekiel 34, verse 6. Ezekiel 34, verse 6. God said, my flock wandered through all the mountains. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. Of course, we know that that passage is in part where God is chastising his shepherds that he had established, that he had put in place to lead his people, to keep them from wandering and going astray, and those shepherds didn't do their job. And of course, when Jesus himself stands before his opposers and he says, I am the good shepherd, I am the shepherd that God had prophesied and promised would come and lead God's people. And of course, it was quite an attack and a sort of a roundabout slap in the face to those Pharisees who were listening when he says, I'm the good shepherd that God had prophesied that he would establish. So we, like sheep, can go astray. Another aspect, there's the idea of moral evil. And this is often used of Satan and demons. The idea of moral evil A good example of this is Acts 17. We covered this a few weeks ago or months ago. You might remember that uh, Paul and Silas had stopped in the house of Jason, and there were Jews who were extremely inflamed, extremely mad about the message that Paul and Silas were spreading, and they went to Jason's house. And if you remember that story, they pounded on the door, they grabbed Jason, they drug him out in the streets. But what the Jews had done was to rile up people who were morally evil. They riled up wicked men, the text says. Luke writes, wicked men to form a mob and go after Jason and Paul and Silas. They were morally evil. Then we have the idea of falling away with deliberate choices. Um, Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to ask you to keep your marker, your hand, scrap of paper, something in Romans, because we'll kind of be coming back and forth to Romans throughout the morning. But Romans chapter 5, we'll look at verse 15 through 20 for this idea of falling away. Paul writes... But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from the transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Now, so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as though the one man's disobedience I'm sorry, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, that's kind of a tongue twister, a lot of references to transgression, but it references and it highlights this falling away through sin that atonement and um, reconciliation was needed, and that happened through one man, and that's Jesus Christ. And so as we look at all these variations, and we look at, I haven't listed all the actual vocabulary for you, but generally speaking, the most widely used words refer to missing the mark, or falling short of God's standard. In Hebrew, it would be hada, used in the Old Testament, and hamartia, in the New Testament. Those are the two words that generally describe just missing the mark or missing the target. And uh, a lot of scholars will note that this, this concept of missing the mark or missing the target is really only half. It's only half of the story. Think about yourself. If you're an archer and you're aiming at a target, if you miss that target, what happens to the arrow? It hits something else, doesn't it? So missing the mark and missing the target, which is God's standard, is only half the story. That arrow actually hit something else. And the reason that's important is because that's what our sin does. Our sin not just misses the standard and the target, which is God, but it actually shifts and focuses on something else. I'll give you some examples. You guys know the story of uh, Moses going up on the mountaintop? And he's gone for a while. And the Israelites are like, where's Moses? And the result is that they're not content with God's provision. They're not willing to trust in God and place their faith in Him. They begin to form their own solution. They begin to fashion an idol with all of the gold that they came out of Egypt with. And they create this golden calf in which to worship. And so as I share that, The point is that missing the mark was failing to trust in God when Moses was gone. They didn't trust God. But the target that they did hit, or what they hit instead, was fashioning an idol and turning to idolatry and worship. See how that works? Proverbs 8, verse 36. He who sins against me injures himself, God says. All those who hate me love death. So, missing the mark here in this Proverbs passage is sinning against God. But what is hit instead is ultimately loving death. James 4, 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So, missing the mark is choosing friendship with the world over God. But what is hit instead is becoming an enemy of God. Maybe if we brought this to more contemporary circumstances or current events, think about the pro-choice movement. The standard or the mark or the target should be sanctity of life, should be a respect for life. right? But when that is missed, what ends up being hit, I'm going to say is a love for death. So what, what is missed becomes 180 degrees opposite of what was supposed to be hit, which is the standard of God and who He is, His principles, what He stands for, what He represents. And dare I say that this is even evidenced in the nomenclature that they choose. They don't want to say that we're pro-death. They say, we're pro-choice. It's so much more palatable, isn't it? But if the target is the sanctity of life... And God's standard, which is pro-life, then the opposite has to be pro-death. And they know that, but they're not willing to do that. They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And so, sin always represents loyalty to something else in lieu of God, doesn't it? It always represents loyalty to something other than God himself. And isn't it interesting that repentance requires the same? Doesn't repentance, true repentance, require us to turn from what we have been focusing on, what our target has been, that we've been missing, and turn to God himself? 180 degrees. Now, that's sin. Done. <laughs> Let's look at three categories of sin that will say plagues humanity. Now, I'm not talking about specifics like murdering, or lying, or stealing, or cussing. You all know those. We have the privilege of standing before very, very mature believers and a very mature audience. I don't have to go through a litany of sins in a list because you all know them. What we're talking about this morning are going to be three aspects of sin that the Bible describes that humanity is, let's just say, plagued with. Now, the first is titled as imputed sin. But I don't want to spend a lot of time on this this morning because... Michael and I had a discussion about this, and it might not be the best title. And I'm sharing it with you as imputed sin, because if you are spending time in Christian circles, and if you hear this term, you will understand, you will know what they are referring to. But I'm also going to say that the reason that this title might be a little problematic is because what it seeks to espouse is that when Adam sinned, That we were there with him in the same way, almost partaking in his sin, which is not necessarily true. What has really happened is that what has been imputed to us are the consequences of Adam's sin. We now experience physical death. That's a result of Adam's sin. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. A definition of impute means to assign or ascribe something to someone or credit something to someone. To ascribe or assign something to someone or credit something to someone. So if we say that we have imputed sin, what we're saying is that God, in some way, shape, or form, has basically laid sin upon us from Adam, which seems inconsistent with the character of God, doesn't it? But if we recognize that what we really experience are the consequences of Adam's sin, which is physical death. We can now reconcile that with scripture. Look at chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now, the reason uh, we went to that passage for a moment is simply because Paul is using, I believe, the term death interchangeably, spiritual death and physical death. And what he highlights here for us is that all have sinned, right? The Bible says no one is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, God does not need to impute Adam's sin upon you and I because sin has reigned in all. All have sinned and therefore all experience death. So, we do experience physical death as a result of Adam's sin, but not as though we were there sinning with Adam himself. The second category aspect of sin we'll call inherited sin. This is also referred to as our sin nature or original sin. Our sin nature or original sin. I would say this is simply a reality of being human. We have human parents who were born with a sin nature. They inherited their sin nature from their parents and their parents before them and their parents before them. And the inherited sin nature does go all the way back to Adam. Ephesians 2.3 says that, we were objects, we are objects of wrath. Whose wrath? God's. Because of our sin nature, we are naturally objects of wrath. Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So Paul writes here that we were enemies of, who needed reconciliation with God. Our sin nature, our inherited sin, means that we are naturally enemies with God and need reconciliation. I'm going to turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, which you guys probably remember, is a Psalm of David, and it is when Nathan confronts David about his sin. Verse 5, David writes this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now you might remember that for a moment, David didn't really want to acknowledge his sin. And Nathan gives him an example, gives him an illustration. And David's response is, Man, that guy's wicked. And Nathan has to say, That's you! I'm giving an illustration as to what you have done, what your life is like. And God's Holy Spirit pricks David's heart. And he comes to the realization, Oh my goodness, I've sinned. And he says, Against you, God, only have I sinned. Yeah, there was Uriah. And yeah, there's Bathsheba. But in the end, Sin is against God. And so what David says here, In verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin my mother conceived me. This isn't some sort of uh, perverted explanation for conception. This isn't some sort of compromised explanation for how he was birthed, but rather, he was born with a sin nature. He inherited sin just like you and I. We inherit sin from our parents. It's not a choice, it is a condition. One thing that inherited sin does is it leads to the total depravity of man. Turn with me to Romans. I told you to keep your finger in Romans. Hope you've done that. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, Disobedient to parents. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also grieve hearty approval to those who practice them. Inherited sin leads to the total depravity of man. Now, before you start to get too depressed and feel as though... We're saying you are totally depraved. Total depravity does not mean that every single person becomes totally depraved. This is a universal truth about what happens to humanity outside of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is how mankind behaves as a result of inherited sin. We become totally depraved, crazy thinking, completely against the principles of God and the character of God. This list, I mean, look at this list. This is what happens as a result of inherited sin. Paul writes of himself, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue, who will save this body of sin? He knows that outside of the blood of Christ, how depraved he is himself. And so depravity, or total depravity, affects many aspects of humanity. 2 Corinthians 4.4 refers to how our intellect is blinded. Ephesians 4.18 refers to our understanding becoming darkened. Um, Titus refers to our emotions becoming compromised. And in Romans 6.20 and 7.20, Paul reveals that our will and our bent is towards sin, which is in opposition to God. Romans 6.20 and 7.20, that our inherited sin gives us a bent and a propensity towards sin, which is completely against God. And so the consequences for inherited sin is spiritual death. The consequences for inherited sin is spiritual death. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul writes, You were dead in your transgressions, but made alive in Christ. I'm going to turn to Revelation 20. I think this might get covered in a couple of weeks, possibly. Maybe not. Revelation 20 Verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death of the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so the consequence of inherited sin is spiritual death. You and I are born with inherited sin, if we do not confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we have a spiritual death. Our name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. But God's provision for inherited sin is redemption and the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's provision for inherited sin is redemption and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, <clears throat> when looking at Hamardiology, there will be theologians and scholars who will use the term cure or the term remedy. I don't really like those terms because inherited sin is not cured. It continues to be transmitted. Inherited sin is not remedied because even though we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, we still make mistakes and we are still subject to sinning here and now. But the term provision, in my opinion, reveals that God has accounted for this and has made a provision to deal with with inherited sin, He has made provision through Christ Jesus to deal with what would and has set us against him, made us enemies against him, and has warranted eternal condemnation for us, except that God's provision says, I'm going to provide redemption and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ryrie says this, We are freed of the dominion of sin by Christ's death, And we are freed of the domination of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are freed of the dominion of sin by Christ's death. And we are freed of the domination of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus died on the cross to address this universal condition of inherited sin. He's not stopped the transmission, but he has dealt with the consequences. Romans 5a, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So before you made a decision for him, he was dealing with inherited sin. He was dying for you and I before we ever said, yes, Lord, thank you. I accept that free gift. The provision was being made by God for this universal condition of inherited sin that each and every one of us is born into. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from what? The law of sin and death. In Galatians five twenty four through 25. We've been given life in the Spirit and we are empowered to walk by the Spirit. I'm going to turn to Colossians 1 because I love this passage. Colossians 1. Verse 13. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Isn't that cool? God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. That's God's provision. That's God dealing with inherited sin. Now, the third aspect third kind of sin we'll talk about this morning is personal sin. I would say that the personal sin is when the condition of our sin nature or our inherited sin is manifest today. Uh, We inherit a sin nature that we've discussed already, and this ultimately leads to sin here and now in the present. And this is the one that probably comes to your minds first and foremost. When we talk about sin and homardiology and the, the... theology of sin and the idea of sin, you probably are thinking to yourself what you did yesterday or this morning and you're thinking very introspectively and that's fine. That's personal sin. Look at um, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 18. What then? Are we better than they? Paul writes, Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks... ...are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness... Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then jump down to 22 and 23. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what Paul's doing here is he's giving an amalgamation, I would say, of various psalms and Isaiah references. And he essentially highlights four things. In his craftiness of taking his knowledge of Old Testament and putting them together in this letter, he reveals the first is that there is no people group better than another when measured by God's standard. He that's how he opens up. Uh, We do assume that we're better than they are? No. No. All sin is equal. The second thing he says is nobody is righteous. Nobody seeks God. Everything that is written within us is wicked. Everything that is within us is wicked from the get-go. That's what exudes from us. And then he says, we have no fear or reverence for God. And so personal sin, it includes the obvious outward acts that we can easily witness. But it also includes those quiet internal matters of our hearts. Remember when Jesus was teaching and he said, You've heard it said that you shouldn't murder, and everybody standing in the crowd's probably nodding their heads. Yeah, I've been good at that one. I, I, haven't, I haven't murdered. I can check that one off. And then he throws him a big old curveball. Right? Yeah, but you know what? If you've harbored some anger in your heart towards your neighbor or your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Ah, oh. he says. You've heard it said that uh, you aren't supposed to commit adultery. Oh, yeah, I'm good at that one. I haven't done that. I can check that one off. And then he says, Yeah, here's the thing. If you look at that man or woman lustfully, you've kind of already committed adultery in your heart. And so sin, personal sin, is manifest certainly in the outward ways that we can see, certainly in those ways that are obvious. In those ways that we all look at others and go, Ah, look at how evil and wicked they are. Look at that. Why don't they just get their act together? Sin is also the quiet stuff that occurs in our hearts that doesn't glorify God and transgresses His standard for us. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says that we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought Needs to be given over to Christ. Because our inherited sin and our original sin, our sin nature, wants to go in all different directions. And so we have to be mindful to take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. James 4.17 If you know the right thing to do, and you don't do it, he says, that's sin. Oh well, wait a second here. Um... So I've I've checked off all the Ten Commandments, I'm good on those. But now James is saying, if you know a right thing to do and you don't do it, even that, even just the omission, just not doing something when you know what's right, can be sin. Think about what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 regarding Christian liberties. You know, his concern, of course, was a Gentile who understands... That that Gentile is neither freed nor condemned by what he puts in his mouth. I am saved by my confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing more. I'm not saved by what I eat. I'm not condemned by what I eat. So I'm going to eat whatever. And so that Gentile might have gone to the marketplace and may have purchased some meat that had previously been sacrificed to an idol and sits down across the table from the Jew who is just appalled. How can you sit there and eat that Gentile? How can you eat that meat that has been sacrificed to that idol up in the temple and sold to you? That is completely unclean. Well, to the Jew, that was really, really important. And Paul says to the Gentile, to the degree to which you basically exercise and and flash your Christian liberty in front of another brother and cause them to stumble, that is sin. You are sinning when you do something like that that causes your brother to stumble. Even if you're in the right, meaning you know and I know you're not condemned by that meat that you're eating. It's just meat. It's just good for your body. I get it, Paul says. But when I sit across from somebody who that's going to be offensive, I don't do that. And you shouldn't either. So James says, man, you know the right thing to do and you don't do it? That's a sin. Paul says, you have some Christian liberty and you choose to exercise it? flamboyantly and flagrantly in front of somebody else who doesn't understand it? That's sin. Oh, Jesus is really tightening the screws now, isn't he? Well, shoot, we can get the Ten Commandments. We can knock those out of the park. But now when we have heart issues, man, Holy Spirit's revealing to us, hmm, I'm not as squeaky clean as maybe I thought I was. And so we have consequences of personal sin. And the consequence of personal sin is a broken fellowship with God. The consequence of personal sin is broken fellowship with God. Now, for the unbeliever, that's pretty obvious. Personal sin warrants his or her eternal condemnation. He's not in fellowship with God now, and he will experience separation from God for eternity. That's the consequence for the unbeliever. But for the believer, for those of us saved in Christ Jesus, our consequence of personal sin is also a broken fellowship, though temporary. We're not disqualified from heaven. We're not disowned by God. He hears our prayers, but we're sideways with God for a time. Our relationship with Him is tainted. You've been there. You know what it's like when you've maybe been in a season of some unrepentant sin, and it creates a little bit of a conflict between you and the Lord. Not for Him, but it does for you. There was a time between... Sayer and Rennie being born That we had a miscarriage And um, I remember Susan um, Sending me a text message She was at the doctor's office And she had suspected Because of some things that had happened at home She had suspected that that's what it was But needed to go to the doctor to just confirm And at the doctor's office That was confirmed And she said, yeah, this is what happened And I said, okay I said, I'm sorry And I said, we need to talk because at that time, the time that that was taking place, um, our relationship wasn't the best. It wasn't terrible. But we were very much like ships passing in the night. And that was a problem. There was a barrier between us by simply just passing in the night. And, and not being united like we were supposed to be. And I believe God used that incident and that event as a catalyst. Right? Terrible event. Very unfortunate. But he used it as a catalyst for us to go, yeah, we got to come together and we got to fix the barrier that's between us. Nothing physical, but I said, we got to talk. And she wrote back, I know. We're in a much better place now, which is great. But I think God does the same with us. You know, we can be like ships passing in the night with God and we can become calloused in our sin. And God's kind of whispering to us and he's saying, we got to talk. He's waiting for us to go, I know, let's talk. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and their first inclination was, well, to cover their sin but then hide? God said, why are you hiding from me? Where are you? Their personal sin created a broken fellowship with their holy creator. And so God's provision for personal sin is forgiveness through confession. God's provision for personal sin is forgiveness through... Through confession. So, first, for the non-believer, personal sin is first covered by a confession of faith. Right? That's the first thing that a non-believer needs to do is confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Peter said, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what you need to do. Period. Ephesians 1.7 In Him... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. That's what the non-believer, or as Matt and I have a friend who says, the pre-believer needs to do. But for the believer, who also experiences a broken fellowship with God as a result of personal sin, the same is true. Not that we need to confess our faith in Christ Jesus, but we need to confess our sins, don't we? We need to come clean with God, like David did, against you... Only have I sinned. Isaiah, I am a man of unclean lips. God, I need you. First John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful passage. I think about that upper room when Jesus was reminding the disciples, you need your feet cleaned. And Peter says, Whoa. If that's true, just give me a whole shower. No. Peter, you don't need a whole shower. But your feet did get dirty on your way over here this morning. For the believer, we're saved. We're heirs of the kingdom. But on a daily basis, we might sin. And that requires a confession. God, I'm sorry I used that vocabulary. God, I'm sorry I fudged my taxes. God, I'm sorry I whatever. God, I'm sorry. I knew what the right thing to do was, and I still didn't do it. That I committed a sin of omission. God, I am sorry. Please forgive me. Now, the last thing we'll look at this morning is the Christian's protection from sin. We'll just look at three arenas. First being the Word of God. Turn with me to Psalm 119. And keep your finger in Psalm 2, Psalm also, after you're there. Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word I have treasured in my heart. Why? So that I may not sin against you. Your word I've treasured in my heart, and the reason is so that I might not sin against you, Lord. Turn to Psalm 19. This is one of Michael's favorite psalms, I believe, if I may say that on his behalf. He knows where I'm going. He could recite it for you. Verses 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Ephesians 6, 17 the sword of the Spirit, Paul refers to. Isn't it interesting that the only offensive aspect to the armor of God is the Word? Everything else is defensive and protective. And there's one element or component to the armor of God which is offensive. And it is the Word of God. Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, that all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's good for teaching, rebuking, and righteousness, right? So, one protection that we have from sin is the Word of God. Uh, The second is the intercession of Jesus. Hebrews 7.25 Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for believers. I think about John chapter 17 when Jesus prays the high priestly prayer he prays to the Father Lord don't take them out of the world I know that your plan is to leave them in the world but I pray that they would not be of the world and I pray Father that you would protect them while they are left here. So Jesus prays and intercedes on our behalf. In Luke, Jesus stood before Peter and told Peter that Satan has requested and has asked to sift you like wheat. And Jesus says, I'm praying for you, Satan. I am praying for your heart that when you return back to me, which is a little kind of a foreshadow, if you were Peter, you'd go, what do you mean turn back? What did you talk about, Willis? What, What? What's going to happen? That when you turn back to me, that your faith will be strengthened and that you will be a solid foundation for your brothers. So Jesus prayed for Peter. He prayed for his heart and he prayed that his faith would be strengthened. So Jesus intercedes for us. We have the Word of God. The third we have is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We discussed this when we looked at pneumatology. Galatians 5, verse 16 through 24. The Holy Spirit helps us to abstain and put to death the desires of the flesh. And at the same time, he helps us set our desires on the fruit of the Spirit. Remember what we talked about? About generally missing the mark? That sin not only is missing the mark and the target of God's standard, but it's also hitting something else. In Galatians, we're told that the Holy Spirit helps us turn from the wickedness, the stuff we are hitting back towards the fruit of the Spirit and the stuff that we're supposed to be focused on. So we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. The Spirit reveals the things of God and searches the depths of God for us. He reveals to us things that only God knows. Things that we could not know without Him. And so part of our protection occurs through the Word and staying in the Word and diligently writing that on our hearts and studying it, the intercession of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You guys have heard it said that sometimes the best defense is a good offense, right? I don't know if any of you have been watching the news. Not that big a deal, but the Big Ten is now including two more teams from California, right? They're up to 16 teams maybe, and there's discussion about Notre Dame joining the Big Ten. You know, what this is potentially going to turn into and what college football has turned into at large are these big shootouts. Remember the days of Woody Hayes when it was like the score was 5 or 7 to 2? Rare score. Low scoring games, right? Just huge defensive matches. Now the trend is these big, powerful offenses score as many points. Sometimes these games are simply being won because the offense is racking up so many points on the other team. And defense... Sometimes prioritized and sometimes not in this current season of college football. I think that's what we're going to see in the Big Ten. My point is this: that you know, one of our best defenses towards sin is a great offense. Is to be in the Word regularly, to be praying, to be in communion with the Father. Sure. We have the Father that we can go to through the blood of Jesus Christ, as John writes, and confess our sins because he's faithful to forgive. That's great. That's amazing. But maybe not getting into sin in the first place is a great defense. Speaker static. And so I just want to say this in closing. God has given us the tools and equipped us to reject the sinful tendencies that we have. That doesn't mean that you're going to live a perfect life. Don't shoot for a perfect life because that'll be frustrating. But he's given us and he's equipped us with tools to reject the sinful tendencies. James says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he flees. Submit to God first, resist the devil whispering in your ear, and he's going to flee. Focusing on God is our primary goal. And we need not become depressed or fatalistic about sin. Our sin doesn't surprise God. You know that, right? God is not surprised by our sin. He's got it covered. He's made provision. And so, the last thing I'll share is a quote that Matt had shared with me this week. C.S. Lewis writes this, Progress means getting near to the place you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turn, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. C.S. Lewis tells us right there, you can be on the wrong road. God gets it. He knows. He's not surprised. But our job is to do the about face. Don't continue down that. Do the about face and get back to the right road. He's given us the tools, He's equipped us with the Holy Spirit, and He's shown us that if we're faithful to confess, He's faithful to forgive.